Conversations are fluid. This episode of Fika with Annika is over an hour long and will continue after the top of the next hour. Stay tuned to KOYT 97.1. Fika with Annika. The word fika is used as both a noun and a verb and is derived from the Swedish word for coffee. The Swedish coffee break is a moment to literally leave work behind. Taken at three in the afternoon, it's not a strategy for multitasking or for fitting in another mini-meeting. It's a chance to relax in the company of colleagues or friends. The key is to pause your day. So, brew up some coffee, grab a seat, and embrace Fika. It has been said that if music was a religion, then Memphis would be Jerusalem and Sun Studio its most holy shrine. In 1954, an unknown Elvis Presley grabbed a mic and sang his heart out, making Sun the most famous recording studio in the world. Sam Phillips opened Sun Studio in 1950 with the goal of capturing the pure raw energy of Beale Street. It produced the first rock and roll single, Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats version of Rocket 88, in 1951 and continues as an active recording business for many notable artists, including U2, Def Leppard, John Mellencamp, Paul Simon, Margot Price, and many more. Lesser known to the public is Sam's brother, Judd Phillips. Judd was a music promoter and record company executive who ran Sun Records with his brother Sam. From their tiny recording studio at 706 Union Avenue, the Phillips brothers participated in the birth of rock and roll, recording such future rock and roll superstars as Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Charlie Rich, Johnny Cash, and Carl Perkins. Jerry Lee Lewis, for example, first worked with the Phillips brothers at Sun, where he recorded a string of rockabilly hits, including a whole lot of shaking going on and great balls of fire. After Lewis left Sun in 1963 and switched to the larger Mercury label, Judd Phillips became his manager for more than a decade. Judd Phillips spent most of his tenure at Sun dealing with the outside forces that helped determine a record's fate. Sam Phillips said that such songs as Blue Suede Shoes, Get Rhythm, and Breathless would never have reached a mass audience without his brother's ingenuity as a promoter. I am pleased that this hour of Fika with Anika is an interview of Judd Phillips Jr., son of Judd Phillips, with Barry Shankman and his co-host K. Paul Compton. Barry Shankman has graciously given permission to me to air this, so pull up a chair, pour yourself your favorite brew, crank up the volume, and listen in to the voice of Memphis. This is the Voice of Memphis Music, broadcast on allmemphismusic.com. Each week, Voice of Memphis Music brings you exciting visits with respected artists, thought-provoking interviews with industry professionals, and a generous dose of Memphis-style good times. This week's guest is Judd Phillips. Let's join Barry Shankman and K. Paul Compton with this week's interview. Welcome, everyone. I'm Barry L. Shankman with our co-host, K. Paul Compton. Today on Voice of the Memphis Music, our guest is Judd Phillips, 
a member of the musically historical Phillips family, and a major contributor to Memphis music in his own right. Judd, welcome to Voice of Memphis Music. Glad to be here, Barry and Prof. Glad to have you. Uh, Judd, you were born in Alabama, right? But you were raised. Well, I in... heard that, but I really don't remember. Uh, no, <laughs> but you were raised and educated in Memphis, right? Uh, actually, both uh, between you know back and forth between uh, we had a place here in Memphis and also in Florence, Alabama, and uh, I was back and forth. Went to school with a lot of the guys in the Muscle Shoals rhythm section, and most of you know a lot of the people there, but. Uh, most of my time was spent in Memphis. I see. Your father, Judd Phillips, and your uncle, Sam Phillips, came to Memphis from Alabama and started Sun Records. And uh, Sam was primarily the recording end. And um, the business, uh, and your father was the uh, um, the record promoter. Uh, right. And, and your dad practically wrote the book on record promotion. Uh, what do you remember <laughs> of those days? I sure do. Uh, you know, uh, the the combination was was great from from uh, the beginning because uh, not everyone has you know all talents and their their talents were so complimentary. My father, uh, if you remember, in promoting the records of those days, uh, they were anything but the mainstream at the time. So. Uh, it took an awful lot of effort to to get this into uh, in in front of the public for them to to like it. You know, you can do great things in the studio, uh, but unless you get it heard and get the uh, the talents out there in front of the audience, uh, nobody even knows about it. Uh, Judd, let me ask you: uh, Growing up in the Phillips family. And as a child, did you spend much time around the studio and in the music industry? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm asked frequently. Uh, I was born in 1948, and uh, the early 50s was the start of the sun, uh, really hot period. And uh, people ask me frequently, especially when I attend Elvis events here in, in uh People say, well, what was it like being part of history in those days? I said, you got to remember, I was between 5 and 12 years old in that period of time, you know, when when the 706 Union studio, the original Sun studio, was uh, in its heyday. I was there. I was a kid, and uh, I was around. And, and you don't know when history's being made. You know, and, and being a kid, I really didn't care. The main thing, I was around, there was a lot of activity, and everybody seemed real upbeat. And, and maybe a little bit uh, shocking to you, but uh, one of my most vivid memories of those days, even from an early age of, say, five or six or uh, on up, is uh, the respect the guys like Elvis and Jerry Lee particularly and uh, all those and Johnny Cash, the respect that they showed and the uh, gentle nature they had around my mother. You know, you may not think much about that now, but as a child, that really registers with you. Okay. Um, are there uh, any specific events that... Uh 
that at the start of Son and Phillips that that maybe like you said your mother uh, and since a lot of people aren't familiar that your mother was involved in this did is there a story you may want to share about what what yeah your mom they my uh, you know to say I was actually born in the music business that's that is a true statement because for years uh my dad before sun Records started and uh he and Sam were both working when they came to Memphis. They they both had radio backgrounds, and uh, they they loved sound. They loved the technology. And uh, my dad and mother had a traveling gospel quartet, and uh, they had uh, a the first one in Memphis. They had a live Saturday broadcast from the WRE. See studios every Saturday live gospel music for one hour, and they were going and play, playing dates while Mother was pregnant with me. Wow! And uh, she uh, she's one heck of a piano player and uh, has always uh, been just a, a super talented pianist. And uh, in fact, I remember many many times, even as late as uh, ten years or so ago. Jerry Lee, uh, which I'll go into later, would come over to the house and uh, uh, sit down at the piano with him, and uh, and he left to jam with Mother, and they'd they'd both be sitting on the same piano at the same time, and uh, uh, it was a lot of fun. In fact, Mother still has a piano that uh, we had in our home when I was a child that Jerry Lee came over and. Uh, played the original version uh that what he had learned from the demo played it for dad to see what he thought about it just uh played it there and so we still have that piano that's great uh listen i need to ask you a question if it's okay at at there was a point when the brothers decided that they they were going to split and one went to nashville and one stayed in in town in memphis um how did that go? Was it was it what did it cause any problems with the family or was it a, was it a good thing? Well, actually, uh, I don't know that that is exactly the case. Uh, Sam, uh, you know, the studio at six thirty nine Madison Phillips recording is still there, and uh, it was, I think, the the inauguration of it uh, was in nineteen fifty nine, but. Uh, Sam and Dad were like brothers. I mean, like brothers, normal brothers that would uh, fuss and fight all the time. You know, I mean, not all the time, but they would have disagreements. It was very typical, and they would... Uh, actually, Sam opened a studio in Nashville, if that's what you're referring to, and was uh, recording over there for a period of time. Uh, that was in the 60s. And... Uh, some some really good things came out of there. Billy Sherrill was the engineer producer uh, on board over there, and he went on later to be head of A and R for Columbia Records uh, Country Division. But that uh, Sam and my dad arguing uh, or having little mini feuds going was nothing unusual. Okay, that's so. Basically, it's it's just a regular family involvement it wasn't yeah. wasn't a major thrust or or, or complication it, it's just 
family business, as you'd like to no, say. No, it was a... I've seen so many times that they would, uh, my mother and I'd be sitting outside the office and Sam and my dad would be arguing about something in the office, but, you know, we could hear through the door that, that you know, they were yelling at each other and an hour or so later they'd come out and they'd be hugging and, and, uh, everything's cool, you know? I mean, it's just, uh, they had differences of the way they thought things should be done and what should be done. And, and actually they worked them out. You know, it's just, uh, I don't know how to explain it or if it's well, that's, universal or not. That's that, at least, at least it's a good understanding because a lot of people have a misconception of that. And I, I think you cleared it up a great deal for us. And I thank you for that one. Uh, let me ask you something. Uh, uh, Judd, although you were young during the most of the sun days i guess were you involved with sun you know did you work there and did you work with oh, sam yeah, yeah. Your dad? Uh, in fact my cousin knox and jerry sam's two sons we used to be in the mail room well first of all let's go back and talk about 706 union the original studio anyone who hasn't been there it had a small reception room in the front and a little office off to the side. Then the studio was the next door through there, and then the control room, and then the storage room and the tape locker, and the room was in the back. It was like a shotgun kind of thing, you know? So when Sun actually started, there was just no space. You know, you had to yeah. have uh, office for this and that and the other in place. So the construction of the studio around the corner which is only about three blocks from the original Sun Studio, had two floors of offices above the studio that's on the ground floor. And that's how, you know, uh, Sun Records per se, as, a, as differentiated from Sun Studio, was started. And, and Knox and Jerry would take the mailing list every time they have a, a release. And we'd run these old addressograph machines from, from the art, uh, from the uh, dinosaur days, run the labels and put the single that was going out in uh, in the sleeve, address them, post them, take them to the post office and work around the studio and, and help the carpenters when they would be modifying something. And we would uh, piddle around in the control room and help whenever we could and file tapes and that kind of thing. Back when we had, uh, when, when we got four track, that was just unbelievable. We, everything else was quarter inch tape in the early days. And so there, you didn't do much overdubbing there in the front uh, of the business? No. <laughs> no. No, Cell Sync, which allowed overdubbing, uh, was, was coming in with uh, between the two and the four track machines, you know, uh, where you could. Uh, play something back for somebody and then add that as an overdub. Uh, that was, I don't remember what year that was, but it was, uh, it was a real technological miracle in those days. What made you go into the business? Uh, did the family help you get started and help you get involved in the music business? Uh, well, it's just something that I'd grown up knowing. I just knew being around it. I'd traveled with my father even when I was in school. I'd go to Oh, all kinds of places. I went, you know, on like trips with him when Jerry Lee played uh, the Steve Allen show, his big break up in, in New York. And I would 
go to different cities with him when he'd be on promotion trips whenever school allowed as far as uh, I had a break and and even after uh son you know was sold my dad managed Jerry Lee for 17 years and uh even uh on tours with Jerry Lee I used to go with him on the tours and uh sell uh, the program books in the audience. I don't know if y'all remember the old program books that had pictures and all that kind of stuff in it. And uh, Right. Uh, and then Dad in 69 came up with a, uh, not well, 60, no, 64, came up with something everybody told him he was crazy, but he customized an old Greyhound bus and had couches, had a bar, had TV, had a radio telephone, had bedroom in the back, it would sleep eight, had uh, bathrooms, and, you know, a full bar on there. And uh, he used that to go around, and he'd take Jerry Lee and other artists, and they'd make trips across the country, stopping at distributorships and radio stations and throw a little party and have the people come out and... And now I've got I've got pictures of that bus, and uh, I spent a lot of hours on that. Uh, but now it's it's automatic to get a tour bus. But then they thought he was crazy. So, well, can you can you tell us a, a story of of anything that's really memorable about while they were touring on the bus? That mm, not off the top of my head. They were they were constant. Uh, uh, there were constant things uh, happening. I can't recall anything in in particular except the uh, uh, trying to go to the uh, Steve Allen show in New York. Uh, the driver who had actually probably never been out of Memphis uh, kept getting lost, and they they spent a whole day trying to find the studio up there because of if you're familiar with New York, almost every other street's one way and and traffic didn't move very fast, and it, that was one particular instance. But uh, I can't think of anything that just jumps out at me. A lot of people w- didn't really get a formal education, and uh, what made you decide to to major in like business administration and psychology? And do you have a degree in those? Uh, yeah, but I just uh, the. The importance of the business aspect was uh, was something that I had always been uh, fascinated with, uh, as far as uh, understanding how how things work, and uh, also going through uh, the payola era, which uh, my my father and and uh, Dick Clark were the first two that were investigated about that but at that time it was not illegal uh uh it actually came out of restraint of fair trade you know doing favors for disc jockeys to get in exchange for play was was not really illegal it was just uh it, it was not allowing fair trade for people who weren't doing those things so i wanted to make sure that i understood the, the legalities and whatnot, and psychology, I felt, was was a good tool no matter what. <laughs> okay. Let me ask you, um, having having gone that route, do you feel like the, the kids today that are getting into the industry, 
do you feel that they need to get a formal education or, or do you think it's, it's of advantage to them to go to school and, and learn these yes. things? Yes, because, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a highly, you know, the music and the performing aspect, but there are so many other, uh, areas, uh, for people who uh, love music, love the industry, love entertainment, uh, and, and that that they can do and still be close to the business with, without having the what is usually a short lifespan of being in front of the camera and on the stage. You know, uh, the, the real industry pros that last a long time are usually not the ones that are on the stage. Gotcha. And uh, the you know you can compare it to uh, uh, athletes that uh, that leave before they finish their formal education because of their sports interests and they don't realize that at some point they they may have a debilitating injury and they have nothing to fall back on so uh, it's just it just makes good sense to have as much formal education as you can and the understanding of, of other areas other than just your area of prime interest you know it's just just good Got you. Okay. Let me let me ask you this, uh, John. Um, in, in your experience, you've you've um, worked in different aspects of the business: the publishing, the recording, record promotion, and distribution. Wh- which aspect do you favor? Which one did you like the most? Well, it's a toss-up between business affairs and and uh, which is what I've spent most of my life doing and and the uh working with the artist directly in the studio which i've uh when i went to california i worked as an engineer there i had experience in the studio in memphis before i moved to california and i i got a job at a studio there called dimension recorders and uh uh shortly after that tell you how all roads lead back to memphis um the I called a friend who was a big Jerry Lee fan out there just to say hello and tell him that uh, I was uh, living in L.A. had just moved there, et cetera. And this person happened to be Jack Good, and y'all probably remember the hit TV show called Shindig. Oh yeah, from the it was the rock and roll TV show, right? And Jack Good. Uh, uh, Jack Good had moved to California and had started working with the Monkees and uh, as producer for the Monkees. And uh, when I called him just to say hello, I had no other interest. I'd already secured a position at the studio, working my way into first chair engineer then. And he said, my assistant just quit. He said, will you come on board and be my assistant. I said, hell yeah. So I went with, uh, went knowing nothing about television. I, I went to work as Jack Good's assistant on the Monkees TV show and uh, worked like the last nine months that the show was on. And uh, and, and that, that was something, uh, I enjoyed television, but I, I, I loved the music the music aspect of it better. So I could have probably stayed because we were, 
we were on Screen Gems lot, and there were a lot of other production companies going there, and I could probably stay, but I wanted to go back into the studio and work with artists because I like dealing one-on-one, and I like helping them create. I, I, I like helping them put some of their vision down on tape the way that they envision it and the best way that it can be done and be competitive. Okay. So uh, from that standpoint, I, I love the... Uh, business aspect because once again I can help people and uh, by helping them wade through the the murk of the changing business model which uh, is is changing daily actually with the way that we have to promote records and promote artists and uh, the different delivery systems with the mom and pop show with this, I mean, mom and pop shops falling by the waysides and physical records like physical books becoming non-existent. You know, it's a whole different, uh, whole different ball game. And, uh, there's legal intricacies and there's, uh, uh, creative differences and marketing differences that you can either fight or you can try to adjust and do the best you can and still do what you love, which is is doing the music. Okay, can so, I... So, uh, go, no, go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to say, um, I was going to take you back to the Sound Factory just for a minute. You said that okay. you, you really enjoyed being first chair as an engineer, and I understand huh. the, the story about the monkeys, but while you were there, you worked with some really top-notch artists, the Jackson 5, Ry Cooter, Van Dyke Parks, Nancy Sinatra. Yeah. Can you, can oh, you yeah. t- give us some stories about that or t- share some of uh, well, your moments yeah. about that? Yeah, actually, I, I did the uh, first single on on the Jackson 5, which was I Want You Back, and it was done quite by accident. Uh, we were doing another... Motown had expanded their Detroit situation and they were doing an awful lot of stuff in LA and uh, we had an account with them and we were doing various overdubs that they had done tracks on and whatnot in Detroit and they'd fly out the producer to do some sweetening and overdubs and stuff there and so we we had a session booked from Motown that day and it went super quick and so uh, the producer said that he had uh, we it already paid the union musicians for, you know, uh, four songs or three hours, which was the scale. And there was time left. And he said, I've written all these charts out for the kids, they called them. And uh, he said, I, I've done it on my piano and done the score here, but I've never uh, never heard this played down the way I wrote it, you know, on the score. He said, let me just pass this stuff out and let's get something on tape so I can see if I need to make adjustments. And... The musicians were just top, top musicians, and uh, we put out the charts, and I already had the levels on everything, and just hit record, and uh, I Want You Back, that pretty intricate track was cut in like two takes.
never been done in one take. Had it not been, I was just double checking the levels and asking them to start again. Mm -hmm. And so that was the basic track on that, but it was uh, not scheduled to be a, a, a J5 session. It was just, uh, he wanted to see how his charts worked, and boy, did they. And another funny story, the first sessions I worked with Nancy Sinatra, uh, I was I was sitting there, and we were, we were tape was rolling, and... Uh, we stopped the take, and I mean, when the take was over, I looked over to my right, and there was Frank sitting next to me. And he said, he just looked over, I, I didn't even see him come in. I was concentrating on what I was doing. He says, uh, just pretend I'm not here. I go, oh, really? <laughs> you know? How do you pretend that Frank Sinatra's not sitting next to you? And now someone else is getting all your best. These boots are made for walking, and that's just what they'll do. One of these days, these boots are gonna walk all over you. But you ain't been right yet These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over That's, but, that's great And an, another instance was uh, we uh, I did about 15 seconds of recording with Blue Cheer I don't know if y'all remember them. They had a big record called Hush. Yeah. And they came in and they, Sound Factory was not a large studio, but uh, they came in and they had these, like at least six each of those big Marshall amps. And I kept telling them, you don't need that in the studio. You know, we can, we can get that volume in here and get that sound that you're looking for. Well, they cranked them up anyway. And as soon as one of the guys hit just a full chord with all those six marshals hooked together, the entire glass, the double pane airlock glass, just completely exploded in the studio from the compression. And we were all hitting the deck, and they packed up and left. So I guess I worked with Blue Cheer for about 10 or 15 seconds. I don't know. That's amazing. Uh, listen, um, I'd like to move into a, a little bit more about your career. Um, for a while there, you were with Bell Records. Um, can you tell me what position you held yeah. with Bell? Yeah, uh, I left. I moved to New York right after the '71 earthquake in Los Angeles, and I uh, took a position with Bell Records, which was uh, uh, assistant to the vice president of A and R, which was Dave Carrico was the gentleman's name, and Larry Utah. It was. Uh, he was the founder of the company, but Bell had a long history. Here we go back to Memphis. Um, Bell had broken some of their biggest records. Were there, there are three labels that they had, but they all were under the banner of Bell Records, B-E-L-L. -L. Uh, it was Amy and Mala and Bell. And 
the box tops hits from Memphis were all released on bail. Okay. And so there was a connection there, and there was a good connection uh, with Mark James, who was signed uh, from the Memphis Link to do a solo album as a writer, and he was the one that wrote Suspicious Minds for Elvis and Moody Blue. And, uh, but before that, he had a track record with B.J. Thomas, which was... He had the eyes of a New York woman and a big hit on, on Hooked on a Feeling. You know, uh, Bell was a perfect fit, and I was there until 74, I think, 73, 74. And we had probably the best uh, singles record. We were the hottest singles company in the country. We charted about 60% of our artists, um, which was unheard of. And uh, uh, before the, the name all changed, uh, I'll go into that later, but in uh, April of 73, Cashbox Magazine gave the the key people, the department heads and the executives involved, not that, uh, and I happen to be one of the 12 people that got the award, but it was for contribution in making Bell Records first company to ever achieve simultaneously number one, two, and three in Cashbox, and those... Uh, those three records were The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia with Dickie Lawrence and a standard now called Tie Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree with Don and Little Willie. That's the night that the lights went out in Georgia. That's the night that they haunted innocent man. Oh, don't trust your soul and old backwoods southern lawyer. Cause the judge in the town's got bloodstains on his hands Well, Andy got scared and left the bar Walking on home cause he didn't live far See, Andy didn't have many friends and he just lost him one Brother thought his wife must have left town So he went home and finally found The only thing Papa had left him and that was a gun and uh, you know the, that was that was uh, that was a great era, and we we could not get arrested with an album. I mean, we <laughs> we'd have a number one single, and we would be lucky to sell ten thousand albums. We were just a singles-oriented company, and uh, then finally, Larry Utah's commitment was up with the company and Clive Davis took over and one morning we came in and we were all dismissed <laughs> and then he changed the name of the company from Bell to Arista and uh, the rest of that's history okay well the, the y'all's record while y'all were while you were there is an amazing accomplishment as far as the singles go it's, that was just amazing no I was just saying that that was just really uh, a wonderful period of, uh, of 
the singles, which that's what our industry has come back to now. You know, I mean, it's worked it around that we were successful selling singles because even in that early period in the 70s, people were beginning to uh, somewhat rebel against having to buy an entire album of 10 songs to get the one they wanted, you know? And that's what we're, that's where we are now that most people are, are buying and, and putting their own compilations together off the uh, internet. Well, after leaving uh, Bell Records, uh, what label did you move to? Uh, actually, I went to uh, Polygram, which was the Mercury Records division of Polygram. And literally across the street and two buildings down <laughs> in New York. It was in the Director's Guild building, which is two doors down from Carnegie Hall. What was your job there, uh, uh Head of A&R. And uh, I had replaced... Uh, a wonderful man named Charlie Fash, who had been promoted. I didn't replace him. He got promoted to executive vice president and general manager, and I took his A&R position. Well, what artists were uh, your responsibility at that time? Uh, well, we had. Uh, I was I was working more administratively, but we were we were dealing with uh, someone. Charlie had. Uh, Charlie Fash had just signed, which was, that's an interesting story too, but uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive, BTO, uh, groups called 10CC, and uh, right after that, well, I was there, and then we, we came down to Memphis once again, and uh, got involved when, when Stax went uh, under, we went in and uh, signed the Barcase signed Confunction, who had been with them, and shortly after that, signed William Bell and Eddie Floyd, who had been with Stax also, and uh, uh, we opened an office here uh, in Memphis, and uh, out of that, we had uh, 12, uh, 12 releases, LP releases, and six of which went gold. And uh, four of those six have since gone platinum. That's excellent. so. With, it was a it was a wonderful experience, and uh, uh, Polygram's a great con uh, company, and uh, the people I worked with was was just wonderful, and we had a good relationship with our artist, and uh, uh, it was it was really good to see. Uh, uh, the artists that had been involved in a company that had gone under uh, for whatever reasons, I don't want to get into that, but uh, have uh, a chance to continue those careers that were uh, either already happening or budding. Were you responsible for, responsible for bringing them over to Mercury from Stacks? As much as anybody. I mean, uh, Mercury was not a one-man show. I mean, we... Uh, Charlie and I talked about it and we flew down and met with, uh, people and then, and it, it was a, a company decision, but, you know, most of the time they, uh, the company, when we have our A&R meetings, uh, would go along with, with, uh, 
good, well thought out judgments, and that's what uh, we felt that they. Uh, you know, we had a company uh, philosophy that there's no I and we, <laughs> so we uh, we decided that they would be a good investment, especially since uh, both Confunction and the Barquets primarily were dynamos on uh, stage. They were just wonderful on stage. So we wanted to make sure that that uh, we had the uh, tour support enough to get them in front of the uh, the audiences because that in itself would sell records. But they did happen to produce wonderful, wonderful records. Uh, moving on a little bit to the present day, uh, in your opinion, what is the state of Memphis music today? I think it's alive and well. Uh, one, let me backtrack and say Memphis music is something that is misunderstood a lot of times. Uh, uh, there, There's a wonderful music community here in Memphis, but I wouldn't call it, uh, with the situation now, I wouldn't call it an industry. I would call it a music community because uh, uh, it's just... It, it's it's more of a creative hotbed than it, than it is the industry per se, with all the peripherals that are involved in that, which are which are spreading out. There's not really that many single places that that are industry oriented anymore anyway. But uh, the the thing that Nashville has over Memphis, but wonderfully they're both in the same state, uh, is that Nashville was something people could identify and put in a pigeonhole. They could categorize it. Memphis diversity has been a publicity shortfall for many, many years because of the diversity of the recordings that come out of here and the recordings of the diversity of the type of uh, music that is represented from rockabilly to uh, really a hub of gospel and in the past decade or more it's become a hub for rap music we have uh, many many over the years uh, many wonderful artists have come in here to record uh, from uh, YouTube to, I mean the list goes endless but it goes back to people like Dusty Springfield her recording of uh, Dusty in Memphis, where Son of a Preacher Man was cut here. The only one who could ever reach me was the Son of a Preacher Man. The only boy who could ever teach me was the Son of a Preacher Man. Yes, he was. He was. Yes, he was. Herbie Mann, uh, Memphis Menu, which is uh, uh, probably, uh, 
still on the all-time jazz great album list. And Neil's, uh, excuse me, Neil Diamond has been in here. And then Elvis came back and did 50-something sides here from Nashville. And the list is endless of people that come in who want to uh, be a part of that of that particular uh just the atmosphere of the creative nature of Memphis and many art and ardent being uh probably consistently the only state of the art studio constantly over all these years. And John Fry and uh Jody at Art have kept a just a constant flow of people from Z Z Top to to date and all the many things that they've done there we this is more of a creative uh uh a creative community and then uh, than it is an industry per se but the the reason i jumped on that is because i don't think you can really define the memphis sound there is no one sound uh but the memphis uh, I don't know. I just can't pigeonhole it in, into one thing, but we have a creative community here that is uh, equal to or better than anywhere you can think of. Uh, you and your wife, Rose, collaborated on a work about Elvis, um, and I'd like to know, would you would you tell us a little bit about the what y'all did, the title of it? Oh, uh well, I actually was a project manager, but uh, Rose was uh, actually she was a reporter. She was a, a writer for Rolling Stone and for Billboard during Elvis's last tour, and was actually on tour with them when they took the break when his unfortunate passing in '77. They were on a break, if anybody remembers that history of it. But uh, uh, she wrote. Uh, Dr. Nicopolis, uh, Dr. Nick, Elvis's doctor, people have been after him for years to write his memoir. And since uh, Rose covered all of his trials and stuff for uh, ABC Nightline and for Rolling Stone writing full reports of all that stuff uh, and had known Dr. Nick before, and uh, he asked her to do his memoir which uh, the title of it is The King and Dr. Nick. And uh, we spent about 21 months on that project, and uh, it's the book is available on, I guess, the normal source of Amazon, Kindle, and whatnot, uh, called The King and Dr. Nick. But I worked behind the scenes. I cleared all the... Uh, uh, I cleared all the quotes, all the uh, photographs that we used. Uh, actually, I read every document to do with the legal matters concerning uh, Dr. Nick's uh, medical board hearings, his trial, his uh, criminal trial, and all the motions, all the testimony, and all that stuff. And uh, actually, it's probably is. The best documented, I think it is the best documented account of uh, Elvis and Dr. Nick that, that has been done because there's nobody quoted in that book that I didn't personally send a copy of where they're quoted and ask them to sign off that the quote was in context and was accurate. 
And uh, so, you know, we're not saying that what they said is absolute truth. We don't know that. We know that they said it, and they they admit that they say it. If you know what I mean, I mean, because uh, oh. oh. we're not verifying what they say is accurate, but we did get their permission that they were not quoted uh, inappropriately, and uh, it's a very uh, interesting book. In fact, some people have said that once you get past, uh, uh, once you get into the trial part. Uh, people were anticipating being bored there, but a couple of people said it. Uh, the trial part was presented in a manner sounded like a Perry Mason show, you know. So that's that's quite a compliment. But uh, well, you're we're we're very proud of that. Conversations are fluid. This episode of Fika with Anika is over an hour long and will continue after the top of the next hour. Stay tuned to KOYT 97.1.